Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Hope you've had a, a relaxing summer, although it's it, some places feels like uh, uh, Christmas in July based on the respiratory season that all of you are experiencing as pediatricians and APRNs, PAs, family medicine docs, uh, seeing uh, you know very, very busy respiratory season. I think John may touch upon that uh, with uh, lots of RSV. Uh, I want to send out a shout out to our colleagues in uh, hospital medicine, our residents, our colleagues in the emergency department and in the urgent care facility that have been very, very busy. Uh, I don't think I remember a, uh, a summer where I kept getting calls that we didn't have uh, beds available because of how busy they are. And this is what we get in January or February or March. So thank you to all of you uh, here locally and then those of you in the surrounding hospitals and in your clinics as you're seeing patients very busy trying to keep everyone safe, thank you for what you're doing. This has been a trying time across the board and, and uh, we certainly don't expect this in, in, in the summer. Uh, thankfully, we, I, I, I believe we are doing uh, far better than the rest of the country and here in New England and certainly in Connecticut. And John, I think we'll, we'll allude to that, but it's still a very tough COVID time. And we were just sort of chatting here before the, before the meeting and uh, you know, how long is this going to go? How long is it going to come through? And uh, we'll get some words of wisdom from him in terms of, the, you know, what, what's going on with COVID. Uh, I do want to uh, wish those of you who celebrate the Jewish New Year, Happy New Year. Uh, I know it started on, on Monday and this is a whole week of atonement. Uh, so uh, to you, uh, you know, our, our, our wishes for, for a sweet and happy new year. Uh, we, we are with you uh, and, and appreciate everything that you do. Um, just to plug in, uh, tomorrow is the 18th annual 5K run and work for Nancy's kids. Uh, Nancy was a, a colleague of mine. Uh, we actually started at the same time, and uh, you know she unfortunately passed away due to uh, a cancer. And we celebrate every year with with a with a run. Last year was we couldn't do it because of COVID-19. We're actually going to have it this year. You can do it virtually or in person. And there's a link that's going to be put in the chat to please join us. It's at the West Hartford Reservoir. We do it safely. Um, I'll be running tomorrow, do the 5K. I'll probably end up in the next to last place, but we'll be there. Uh, and, and to celebrate her life and accomplishments, it's a, it's a nice, joyous occasion. It's going to be a beautiful day, is what I understand from the weather. So, so please do join us. Uh, tomorrow is September 11th, and uh, I think all of us remember 20 years ago where we were, you know, what was going on and, uh, you know, how <clears throat> this really changed our country in so many ways. I, I still, we're still seeing the, the results of 9-11, of uh, you know, some, some things very negative, some very positive, uh, but, but right now I just want to take a moment of silence to remember all those who passed uh, on September 11th. Uh, some of you knew folks that, that were in the involved with this either directly or indirectly in some way. I think we're, we were all touched by this. Uh, 20 years have passed. Uh, certainly has been a, you know, an incredible 20 years. And we, we, we do want to stop and, and remember the victims of 9-11 and, uh, and the courage that it took to recover from that uh, for, for all of us. Uh, so let's just take a moment in silence uh, and remember since 9-11 20 years ago. Thank you. So we have, uh, uh, again, we have John back, who's uh, going to share some 
wonderful new information, uh, some challenging information. And uh, we'll be joined by Sarah Clark, uh, who, uh, who is uh, uh, somebody who's been quoted and written in the New York Times. And I think you'll hear some wonderful information that of her research uh, related to, to vaccine and kids. Uh, but I'm gonna pass it to John. I know you're all waiting for him. So Dr. Shriver, you're back to the podium. Thank you, Juan, um, and uh, welcome everyone. Certainly good to see all of you here. Uh, I wish we weren't talking about COVID, but we will talk about COVID today. And uh, let me find my advancer. Um, I do want to, before we get started, I do want to acknowledge our very own Steve Bilby in the, in the uh, studio, who's critical to run this program, uh, the loss of his mother, and uh, he has our sincere condolences, the entire team. Um, so Connecticut, what's going on right now with COVID? You read the newspapers and uh, right now in Connecticut, we are in a resurgence. Uh, this is the number of confirmed cases. You can see we were, we were sort of teasing around a thousand a day. That's gone down actually. And although we are in a resurgence, it's blunted. And I'm gonna show you some data from other states and this is obviously a result of widespread immunization and adherence to public health measures. It's just factual. If only the rest of the country had adhered to this, we would have a very blunted resurgence in the United States right now. That unfortunately is not true. Now, um, the deaths in Connecticut, despite our resurgence, are low. They're not zero, but they're very low. This is a result of immunization because the immunized, although they may get breakthrough infection, are unlikely to die. If they get the infection, it's almost all unimmunized who are passing uh, with COVID-19 currently. Um, and so a well-immunized population that practices common sense public health measures will have a low death rate. And um, again, this is factual and what can be done. It's true in Vermont. Uh, in the other New England states as well, although Massachusetts is having a bump up now. Now hospitalizations really climbed, but then sort of peaked out in Connecticut as well, around 400, maybe a little bit less. And again, that is a result of widespread immunization. Those who are immunized are unlikely to end up in the ICU. That's not, they won't be prevented in everyone, but most of the hospitalized patients in Connecticut most are unimmunized. And I'm gonna show you some data on that in just a second. Now we continue to have a lot of robust community spread. Um, uh, this is true throughout a lot of New England actually, but again, with a blunted hospitalization and death rate, and you'll actually see some towns are improving. You may remember last month, this was all red. We have some improvement in some towns which suggests that Delta variant is peaking out. I'm not sure about that yet, but the suggestion is there. And these are very interesting new data, hot off the press. The last seven days in Connecticut, the new cases are predominantly in those who are not fully vaccinated. 70% of the, we had 2,500 new cases, 70% were in unimmunized and 30% in fully vaccinated. So we are getting breakthrough infections in fully vaccinated but most of them are in unimmunized and most of the hospitalizations and deaths are in unimmunized. So this is now a preventable disease. Like other infectious diseases we've conquered, if we need to get people to understand that life can be saved and hospitalizations prevented by getting a shot. Unfortunately, in the US, um, a little different. Now you'll notice the downturn. We're up to 150,000 new cases a day, um, again, 
Many are preventable. 1,400 to 1,500 deaths a day, a day, from, a day in the uh, United States from COVID. That's on the right, my right. And, you know, sadly, most of those are preventable. Um, each one of those people had a family, loved ones, grandkids, kids, you name it, and they're gone. And once you're gone, you're gone forever. And I think, again, um, people need to see these data and understand that immunization and common cells sense public health measures will blunt this and reduce the deaths. And, and uh, I, you know, there's no other way you can say it other than show the facts. Now, the decline, it's unclear if that's Labor Day weekend where there was no reporting in the United States or whether Delta has truly peaked out. I'm hoping that Delta is peaking out much like it did in England and the UK. I'm not sure yet. Maybe in the next talk, you'll see whether that decline continues. But we have a lot of cases still, and we have 100,000 people hospitalized in the United States. And here are the deaths, uh, almost 2,000 a day. And to me, inexcusable uh, because it's, this is preventable, in large part preventable. Now, the hotspots have shifted a bit. You may remember Georgia, Florida, which is still terrible, Louisiana, Mississippi, but now it's moved up to Kentucky and West Virginia and Southern Ohio as the worst spots in the United States. And actually, Tennessee, West Virginia, those states are, are among the worst in the world right now for numbers of new cases per 100,000 population. So the United States, uh, despite having the technology, wealth, and lots of doses of vaccine available, seems to be unable to have the political will or leadership to really conquer this. And Texas is a particular problem because it's so large and has 30 million people. We'll show you some data from that state shortly. So this is our map. Now you'll notice New England is relatively good except for Northern Maine now where there's a big Delta outbreak. And, and again, uh, you saw the Connecticut map, although we look good compared to the rest of the country, we still have a lot of community spread. We have blunted hospitalization and deaths, however. Let's focus on Texas, one of the largest states, 30 million people. Uh, you can see the pink curve are 20,000 new cases a day in Texas alone, quite remarkable. And the hospitalizations, um, thousands are hospitalized, 10 to 15,000 are hospitalized in Texas currently. Uh, the ICUs are stressed, it's remarkable, it's an enormous state. And there are very few ICU beds in the entire state open right now. Uh, that's a dangerous situation, uh, unfortunately, um, the leadership has not focused on common sense public health measures as well as immunization. And so this is where Texas is currently generating over 20,000 new cases a day. Now, the death rate also has grown enormously and they're up to 200, 300, uh, 400 deaths a day in Texas from COVID. This is probably going to grow before it gets better because, you know, all those hospitalizations, a certain percent will result in, in intubation and death. And so this is where we are. There are a number of other states like this currently, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, but Texas is the largest, 30 million people, and they are having an enormous um, COVID resurgence, pretty almost equivalent to what it was over the winter, not quite yet. Now, Texas is also poorly immunized. Um, they've got about 48% of the state immunized and uh, maybe 58%, 12 and up, which is getting better. That's a big improvement, by the way. And the elderly, 70, 80%. So it's not as well immunized as New England, and it's allowing the Delta variant to burn through the unimmunized population because there's so many, 30 million uh, state population. 
So it is what it is, but uh, the data, very clear, highly immunized, good public health measures. You will have Delta, but you will blunt hospitalizations and deaths quite significantly as we are in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont. These are the best immunized states currently, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut, all up among the top, Hawaii, Puerto Rico has done very well over the last couple of months of correcting an under immunized situation and Rhode Island and Maine are also well immunized. And you can see the difference between this and the unimmunized or poorly immunized states where West Virginia has 44% fully immunized. Um, a real problem, Tennessee 52% and Idaho, Wyoming among the worst immunized uh, in the country, Mississippi. And all of them have very significant rural outbreaks with ICUs being filled and a lot of deaths. So it is what it is, but the immunizations work. Uh, and there seemed to be resistance to this, which we're gonna talk about obviously with an expert in our second half. Now we are not near herd immunity in the United States overall. We've climbed up to about, and I don't look on at least one dose. I'm going on the fully vaccinated because we know that one dose will result in breakthroughs. Uh, about 62% above the age of 12 uh, who, are, who can get the vaccine are fully vaccinated in the United States. Luckily, 80% of 65 and above who are high risk, but we're gonna need to do better as a country. And obviously this is variable because, you know, this is sort of the average and you know, New England is much better than this and some states are much worse than this. So if we can all get to 70, 80%, we'll be on top of this and we'll be more normal. And I keep telling people, you know, if you wanna get back to normal, wear a mask, get a shot. It's pretty simple. So um, we're not near where we need to be, but it's getting better slowly. And I think some of the outbreaks in the Southern states are motivating people to get immunized. Now when a relative dies, it's really tough to get more personal than that. And a lot of people are responding positively to that by getting immunized. Now let's talk about some new data that are coming in. I, there's a lot of churn about Moderna's better than uh, the Pfizer vaccine, which is BNT in this, and mRNA-1273 is Moderna. And in fact, you can see here that you will get higher antibody titers with Moderna than you will with Pfizer um, in different age groups after two doses. Now, however, I showed you last uh, time that this difference in antibody titer is not translating to very much difference in protective efficacy. It's a little. And it's interesting to note, by the way, that the dose of the mRNA of the, of the Moderna vaccine is about twice or more than the dose of the Pfizer vaccine. This is just how they did their workup when they did their initial clinical trials. So, um, you know, I think we are gonna have some fine tuning of this as we move forward in the coming months and years, but Moderna marginally better on inducing antibody titers and a little bit better protection, but not much. It's really not much of a difference. Both of them are excellent vaccines in protection. Now, what about pregnancy? Remember, in the initial clinical trials, pregnant women were not included. So is it protective in pregnant women? So now we have a clinical trial looking at incidence of infection from SARS-CoV-2 in pregnant women who are immunized or not immunized. And you can see that vaccinated pregnant women are protected from SARS-CoV-2 infection. Critical data, because remember the initial clinical trials did not include pregnant women. The vaccine works in pregnant women. Very important data, this is the Pfizer vaccine. Equally important are there new data showing that spontaneous abortion 
in vaccinated and unvaccinated does not differ. So the vaccine does not cause spontaneous abortion. You will not lose your fetus from getting immunized. So among women with spontaneous abortion, the odds of COVID-19 vaccine exposure was not any different than no vaccine in terms of getting um, spontaneous abortions. It wasn't any different than controls within 28 days after immunization. So, um, you know, these are uh, early data coming out, studying this very, very important patient group. But right now, the new studies show it's protective in pregnant women and does not induce spontaneous abortion. We need much more data on this, but I'm feeling more comfortable as we talk to women who are pregnant that we have good data now showing the vaccine is safe and effective in that patient group. Very important data for our patients. Now, um, this is a more detailed uh, data. I wanted to show the, um, the spontaneous abortion data because these are kind of questions I, I have gotten from some of our team members. And you can see the odds ratio, which is one, which is uh, by having vaccine is no different than if you didn't get vaccine in the full population. So it does not increase your odds of having spontaneous abortion, either Moderna or Pfizer. Very important data, and here it is. So uh, we can pull that when we need to show women who are worried about it, um, this is not a problem. What are the data about myocarditis? And I think these are critical. The ACIP, as you know, which is a really linked to the CDC and vaccine review, did a comprehensive review of myocarditis and vaccination. So the summary, and it's a great slide deck. I took a few out for you. The background is obviously COVID-19 is in resurgence. There does appear to be rare myocarditis after the mRNA vaccines, particularly in young males. However, um, myocarditis occurs across the population anyway, but it appears to be a higher rate if you're vaccinated. And the hospitalizations from COVID in young adults, the mean length is five days and 5% required mechanical ventilation and there was death. Hospitalizations for the vaccine-induced myocarditis were about 24 to 48 hours and there are no deaths reported. So let's go into that a little more detail. So the risk of myocarditis following infection, not the vaccination, has been described in recent papers. It's quite high. So patients who have native infection with SARS-CoV-2 have a 16 to 18 times higher risk of myocarditis. So the natural infection is not good for your heart. There's a common incidence of myocarditis. If you are, um, the risk of myocarditis in another study um, was six to 34 times higher compared to those who got the vaccine. So in this study, the risk of getting myocarditis from native infection was six times to 34 times higher than if you got myocarditis, than, than getting myocarditis from the vaccine. So summarize, infection gives you, can give you myocarditis at a much higher rate than getting immunized can. So important data. And here's where they summed it up. And I think it's a, it's a nice slide. So if you look at women in the teenage age groups getting two doses of the mRNA vaccines, you're preventing um, in, in a population of 120 days for every million, this is using Pfizer, 77,000 cases of, of COVID-19 infection was pre prevented, 520 hospitalizations, 100 ICU admissions and four deaths that will yield eight myocarditis cases in excess. So the answer is, so myocarditis is occurring in small, small number excess to what you'd expect. It's very low. And this is the, this, this is the risk that you're thinking in your head of getting the vaccine or not. 
you can end up in the ICU or die, or a very, very small number of kids are getting myocarditis. Now on the male side, it's more, and we don't understand this, but you would prevent 56,000 cases out of a million people who got Pfizer vaccine, 500 hospitalizations are prevented, and 170 ICU admissions and four deaths prevented, but 73 myocarditis cases would occur from immunized patients in a million out of a million people. So I can look at this and have a very frank discussion of risk benefit with parents that in my view falls heavily in the utilize the vaccine and prevent death ICU admission, a small incidence of myocarditis that we need to watch for carefully. The hospitalization for that tends to be one or two days and there were no deaths recorded from it. So this is a nice review by the ACIP on what to do and how to think about myocarditis and the mRNA vaccines. Now, I will also say, in my opinion, this might be related to the closeness in doses that the original clinical trials did, because we're in an emergency situation. They wanted to give two doses quickly. I think that if we begin to separate those doses in future clinical trials, that we might reduce the number of myocarditis cases. But I have no data to support that. I know there are clinical trials going on looking at that. And the clinical outcomes of those with myocarditis after the Pfizer vaccine using the safety surveillance system is important. And you can see again, 16 to 29 year olds, there were 368 recorded, 93% got hospitalized. There were a few in the ICU, zero deaths, went, most went home. Ditto in um, the, another vaccine safety monitoring link where again, zero deaths, 100% went home and they had more admitted to the ICU because it was a very small number, but there were only 16 in this particular data link survey. So again, it happens. It's a small increase over what's expected. The outcomes tend to be good. Now let's talk about masks. Um, I, I, I actually went with a state senator the other day on, on her community uh, program on Zoom. There were a couple of pretty aggressive parents about masking in schools and all this kind of stuff. And look, my approach is we've done a great job in New England and let's keep it up. And if the kids wear a mask in school, the schools are gonna stay open. And I want the schools to stay open because I want the kids in school, I want my grandkid at school. So if they mask, it's likely to stay open. If everyone's unmasked, we're gonna have lots of outbreaks and we're gonna be shutting a lot of the schools down. It's just common sense because masks work. And let me show you an outbreak looked at by the CDC showing how, how, how this works. So this is an elementary school in California in June. And um, what they found uh, was really interesting. There was a teacher there, one teacher who didn't feel good and was unimmunized and was infected, but came to school anyway sick, okay? There's an answer, there's an issue for you, but, and read a story, had a mask on all day, but took her mask off to read a story in her classroom, okay? Now the kid, it was masked situation, but you know it's questionable whether everyone was wearing the mask correctly and how far they were monitoring. And she took the mask off and read the story. Infected 12 of 24 kids in the classroom with Delta. Okay, and what happened next is this is the timeline. By the way, the index patient is the unmasked teacher who was unmasked. You know, probably for half an hour or so. And uh, and then this is the within day five. This is all the people who got infected. And you'll notice that it's spilled over to parents of infected students and at home, siblings, parents. So the reality is an unmasked infected, infected person in the school can infect lots of students and then they go home and they will infect their household. It, this is just fact, it's data. 
So if we all wear masks and the teachers are immunized, this isn't going to happen. So uh, common sense, and I want the schools to stay open. These data support common set public health measures to keep our schools open. So let's do it. That's what we need to do. And our schools are going to stay open in Connecticut and the rest of New England, and frankly, wherever else you're listening today. Great data. This also shows the diagram of the classroom. It's really interesting. So she's up here reading. There's actually one of those portable air filters, which did nothing. And then these are all the kids who got infected. And, uh, and let me go back. And, and so, you know, I, I mean, if there's anything like the schools, I know the windows were open, but the schools have terrible ventilation. A lot of them were built in the 50s and they're not modern buildings, most of them, and they're not ventilated properly. And so again, one infected teacher with Delta who wasn't, who was ill, clinically ill, had, didn't feel good, runny nose and, and went to school and, and took her mask off and read a story. And this is what happened. So, you know, I think the data are clear and getting better and better that masks work in the school setting and reducing the spread in the school and then subsequently reducing the spread back into the household. Now, um, this is really interesting data. Uh, it's a mathematical simulation using these sort of data. Um, it was in the Washington Post, but it came out of uh, one of the public health schools. And what they found doing simulations that um, in a high immunity area, where in a high school, say, and the kids are immunized and everyone's wearing a mask, okay, um, the, the likelihood of, of having um, infections in the school is if everyone's masked and immunized, it's really low. Uh, in a high immunity environment with no masks, unfortunately, you remove a lot of that. That secondary protection is important because we're getting breakthroughs now with Delta. In a low in immunity environment, elementary school, and you don't mask, 90% of the kids are going to get infected in this mathematical model. And you can imagine that's just going to be everywhere in the community. So, you know, again, the modeling would suggest immunize who you can. The adults certainly need to be immunized and wear a mask. And you're really going to, you're not going to eliminate it, but you're really going to drive down um, the uh, outbreaks in schools. So data are good. What is COVID infection doing to young people? You, you all over the country, um, that, not New England, but all over the country where there's a lot of unimmunized, there's a huge outbreak among young kids uh, and young adults. This is a young, these are young adult data. And this, again, the myth, it doesn't hurt us. We're fine. I'm going to go party. It's really not entirely true. Your numbers are less. It's a lot less if you're 20 than it is if you're 80, but it's not zero. And if you infect millions of 20 year olds, you will have a lot of people sick. So here are some data, 16 to 17 year olds. Um, this is the percent severe outcomes. Uh, and you can see here uh, about 5% of them uh, uh, end up on mechanical ventilation. Okay, 5% and then 0.7% death rate. Again, low, it sounds low, but if you have 10 million kids, 16 to 17 infected, that's a lot of dead kids. Ditto on hospital length of stay here in uh, 18, older kids, 18 to 24, about the same death rate and um, about 5% get on mechanical ventilation. These are ICU admissions. And then interestingly, as they get a little bit older, the death rate's starting to creep up at 1%, 25 to 29 year olds. So, you know, that's significant. And, and I think, um, again, it needs to be sobering to our young adult community that the outcomes among patients, these are among patients who are hospitalized for COVID. It's not necessarily great. You could end up intubated and die. So very interesting data about young people. Third dose data. 
Um, a lot of storm about the third dose. Um, this are, these are data from Israel showing booster protection against confirmed infection as a function of days following a booster dose. And the data are really clear. They, they quickly bumped up enhanced protection more than fivefold after day 12 of the third dose. And um, these are data, by the way, the FDA are looking at very carefully because this is what Pfizer is presenting to them about booster doses that the Biden administration wants to start. Um, and so they're real-time data coming out of a country that's giving third doses to millions of people. And this paper came out, this is um, a different study from Israel looking at the Pfizer vaccine booster dose protection. It's a nationwide study. They're gathering data in real time. This was just posted, it's not peer reviewed, not peer reviewed, but was posted. And um, again, showing, uh, let me go back, showing uh, a large increase in protection after the third dose. So it looks like they, are, they have a resurgence in Israel. They're heavily immunized. There's a big Delta resurgence. The third dose appears to be modulating that downwards rather quickly. So very good data. Now, I, I, I will say last time I should point, I've been pointing out um, key leaders who are promulgating disinformation. And uh, last month I pointed out uh, uh, Paul, uh, Dr. Paul and uh, Mr. DeSantis, governor of Florida, as two of the biggest promulgators of false information. And uh, I was taken to task by an individual who said I was partisan uh, by showing these two individuals. And I will tell you, um, you don't know my political affiliation. I'm actually an independent and I'm not partisan. And in fact, uh, I am partisan against those who are promulgating public health measures that will hurt people. And if you look at Florida and the ICU beds, the number of people died, clearly wearing a mask and getting immunized would have prevented that. And when a governor kind of really discourages people from doing that or discourages companies from immunizing cruise ships, and I have trouble with that. I don't care what party he is, it's public health. And in fact, most recently, the governor of Florida said that vaccines are a personal choice, it's not a big deal. If you get it, you don't get it, it doesn't matter. You and I both know that's not true. Certainly if we did that for polio, we'd have lots of kids on uh, in iron lungs dying of polio still in the United States. It's not true. You have to immunize the maximum you can to prevent small outbreaks that spread because no vaccine is 100%. So this is common, this is public health 101, it's mathematics, et cetera. And, and Tony Fauci took this on and called it, he said, this is false, it is incorrect. I think it's very important that we speak up. We cannot stay silent with this. And I, I'm sorry I offended somebody, but in response to that, I'm picking out two Republican governors who've done a great job, okay? And that happens to be Governor Baker, my governor in Massachusetts, where 66, almost 70% of the state are fully vaccinated. Thank you, Charlie Baker, great leadership. And Governor Hogan, Republican Maryland, where it's a heavily immunized state. They've done very well, much better than some of the other states going south. And these are two governors who happen to be of different uh, Republican party. I don't care what party they are. They've done a great job leading public health. I think we need to focus on that and focus on those who are promulgating misinformation should be taken on. We cannot let it go. Those who are doing a great job should be celebrated. I'm doing that. The good, the bad, the ugly, year two. If only I weren't still here doing this, but um, I am. And we will be by your side until we don't have to be anymore uh, at Connecticut Children's. And I will be by your side as will Dr. Salazar and our entire team. So in summary, we are in the big resurgence of the United States. 150,000 new cases, 100,000 people in the hospital with Delta variant. 
mu is out there, but right now Delta appears to be much more contagious than mu. So we'll put that on the side for next time. Despite the resurgences and hospitalizations and deaths in the South, there are some politicians who continue to insist that all mandates interfere with personal freedom and should be forbidden. I have trouble with that. Uh, we all should have trouble with that, um, and it's the facts. It's possible that the Delta variant resurgences are peaking out in the United States. I'm hoping that's true. There's a little bit hint that it's declining. That happened in the UK. Let's hope it's true. Strong public health oriented leadership and the high vaccination rates in New England and the Northeastern states have blunted this resurgence. Those are the facts. Knock on wood, we're not filling our ICUs and we're not uh, having a large death rate from COVID right now because we have a heavily immunized population and we have strong public health measures. We may be moving to a steady state of continued COVID infections. I actually think New England is probably the future. COVID's not going away, but in a heavily immunized environment with good public health measures, we can contain it. It's probably not gonna be very fatal for most people and, and it could be converted to a bad flu in the immunized as opposed to a more fatal disease. So I think we can move to a steady state with this disease, this infection in a heavily immunized environment. Um, third dose of mRNA vaccines for immunocompromised is approved. In my view, the Israeli data will probably move the FDA to quickly move ahead that Pfizer and maybe Moderna will be allowed to be given for a third dose for boosters and high risk perhaps healthcare providers as well. We will find out in the next 14 days what the FDA is gonna do with that. Uh, we know there's waning immunity. We know there's a lot of breakthrough after eight months and we're gonna to need to deal with that in the vulnerable and in our healthcare provider community. Thank you and I look forward to our next talk. Thank you, uh, Ron, and uh, now. A, a transition to a, a great and very important topic for all of you. Uh, we're delighted that uh, Sarah Jane Clark, uh, who is a research scientist in the Department of Pediatrics and Communicable Diseases at the University of Michigan, has agreed uh, and has accepted our invitation. Uh, incredibly accomplished investigator. Uh, she's uh, originally uh, trained at the University of North Carolina, where she got her uh, bachelor's uh, as well as her MPH um, in, in back in the, in the early 90s. Um, and she has uh, devoted her research interest to uh, to immunization, uh, immunization patterns and beliefs among providers, patients, and parents. Also about Medicaid policy and utilization patterns and parents' perspectives, evaluation of child health programs and policies and immunization financing and delivery systems. So we're really delighted uh, that uh, Sarah has agreed to provide some insights specifically about COVID vaccines. So we look forward to your presentation. So uh, Sarah, thank you again, and you have the podium. Thanks so much. Next slide, please. Um, so our uh, CSMOT Children's Hospital National Poll on Children's Health, which we call the MOT Poll, is something that we've been doing. I've been co-directing since 2007. Uh, so it is a recurring poll. We, use, uh, we work with a vendor that uses address-based probability sampling uh, to construct a nationwide panel of over 40,000 people. And then when we field our polls, they select a nationally representative group of parents. So important, not opt-in, yes, nationally representative. Uh, we do a, a, a really cover a wide range of topics. We re release a report every month uh, and that is the website if you're ever interested in checking out our other work. Next slide. So in June of this year, 
we did a poll focused on parents' views around COVID vaccine for their child. The respondents include just over 2,000 parents that had at least one child between three and 18 years. If they had more than one kid in that age group, we randomly selected one that would be the basis for their responses, pretty evenly split between parents of kids 12 to 18 years who already had that option to have their child get COVID vaccine and parents of younger kids, three to 11, where approval is coming. We just don't know when and particularly at that time. Next slide. And so a really important context for this work, we have found over many years, as has, have other uh, immunization researchers, that the recommendation of the pediatrician or the child's usual healthcare provider really is the strongest predictor of vaccination. Over the last 18 months, COVID has really disrupted visit patterns for children. I'm guessing you guys already uh, appreciate that on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's really unclear if parents are having the same level of access for those important conversations around vaccine, particularly COVID vaccine. And that's what we wanted to explore in this poll. Next slide. We have three research questions that I'm gonna quickly discuss today. Are parents discussing COVID vaccine with the provider? and our providers giving a clear recommendation to parents about what the child uh, should do. Um, and how does the discussion with the provider relate to parents' ultimate decisions? Next slide. So we're gonna tackle those first two questions here. Um, and I'm gonna show results split between the parents of the 12 to 18 year olds again, the ones who already had the option of getting vaccine and the parents of the three to 11 year olds. And you'll see for our 12 to 18 group, a third um, said the provider strongly recommended vaccine, 10%, um, uh, a little more lukewarm recommendation, only 3% recommended against, 6% discussed, but no recommendation, but fully half had not even discussed it. When we go to the younger kids, look at that bottom row, 70%, no discussion of COVID vaccine with their child's usual provider. Um, and that's just the overwhelming figure on this page. Next slide. And in terms of the intention at the time for parents to get COVID vaccine, um, uh, about 60% of the 12 to 18 year olds, um, the parents said the child already got the vaccine or they were likely to get and 40% unlikely for the three to 11 year olds, really 50-50 between the proportion who said their kid was very likely or likely to get a COVID vaccine or unlikely to get it. So that's kind of where we're starting from in terms of parent intention. Next slide. Now, how does intention and provider recommendation line up? So we're gonna look at row percentages here. At the top, when the parent hears a uh, that the provider strongly recommends COVID vaccine for the child, the vast majority here, 92%, that combination of the kid already got it, the teen already got it, or was likely to get it. With the, the less strong provider recommendation, uh, still three quarters uh, already got it or were likely. Look at these next two rows though. If the provider recommends against, makes sense to us, right? Three quarters unlikely to get it. But if there's a discussion with no provider recommendation, same result, three quarters say they're unlikely for their kid to get it. So if you're having a conversation with a parent and you're not 
being clear about your recommendation, it's basically in the minds of parents, it's basically the same thing as recommending against. And then on the bottom row, uh, for the ones who have not discussed, um, it leans toward parents being unlikely to have their kid uh, receive COVID vaccine. Next slide. Very similar pattern here with the three to 11s. Obviously none of them had gotten vaccine, but again, with the strong recommendation, most parents say they're very like they're likely to have their kid get it. And again, uh, the rose and red there, um, if the provider recommends against or the provider discusses but gives no clear recommendation, majority of parents end up being unlikely to say that their child will get COVID vaccine. So you need to really think about the, the content of your conversations with parents and make sure that they are hearing a recommendation. And again, similar pattern with the have not discussed, they lean toward unlikely in the absence of any provider discussion. Next slide. Um, for parents uh, whose kids have not yet been vaccinated, we ask them, what are the factors that would be very important to their decision? And it's interesting because only 38% say the, the provider recommendation is very important. But look at those top three. Those are the things you talk about with parents all the time because those are their questions about all childhood vaccines, right? What are the side effects? Does it work? Has it been tested? Um, and so even though the parents might not articulate, the provider recommendation is very important, you are still very much in uh, those top three as you help to translate the scientific data. And I wanna point out number four, because that's a really important role for you also. Over half of parents say their own research is gonna be very important. You know what's out there and you know it includes a lot of misinformation and in some cases disinformation. So I think you need to accept that uh, some of your parents do feel like their own research is really important and you're gonna need to help translate and in some cases debunk some of the inaccurate information that they may have picked up along the way. Next slide. The, pro, the, the ratings of the importance of provider recommendation does differ by age group. I just want you to look at the bottom here. More of the younger kids are looking to you for a recommendation and calling that very important. So I think we really need to be paying attention to our three to 11 population where approval is coming and we need to start setting this up a little bit better. Next slide. So among parents who are of kids who are not yet vaccinated, uh, we wanted to do some analyses because we were wondering uh, for this group that haven't had any provider discussion, is that isolated to the parents who just felt like the provider angle wasn't very important? And if you look at the left-hand column there, um, that is true among, the, uh, among parents who say a provider recommendation is not important to their decision. Three quarters, 75% on the bottom there, hadn't discussed uh, COVID vaccine with their child's provider. But slide over to the right column. So again, these are the parents of 12 to 18 year olds not yet vaccinated. In the right-hand column, these are parents who say the provider recommendation is very important to their decision and half haven't had a discussion. 
Go to the next slide, please. Similar pattern here, but maybe even more so with our three to 11 year olds, even among those who say the provider recommendation is very important, 61% haven't had a discussion. It's not the case that, um, you know, we're just not discussing with people who don't want to hear it. I think we're missing people who do want to hear it. And as I put together these results in our poll, and um, I talked with pediatricians and family physicians uh, in a lot of different parts of the country about why are we having such a problem having these conversations. So uh, one may be the disrupted visit patterns. Uh, I heard that not everybody feels like the uh, well-child visits are back at the level uh, that they were pre-COVID. It's not as automatic for some families. So that's one. Number two though, is in primary care, we tend to focus on what vaccines is your child going to get today? And um, that's sort of been how a lot of uh, primary care practices operate. Um, but that overlooks COVID vaccine because for uh, the three to 11s, they can't get it today. But even for the 12 to 18s, COVID vaccine isn't available in most uh, primary care offices. Uh, and so because it's not there, uh, I, I, that may be a reason that the uh, offices that the pediatricians and the family physicians um, are not, and the, the NPs and the PAs working with them are not bringing this up. We see this with flu vaccine where uh, some providers don't bring up flu vaccine if it's not flu vaccine season. Um, and so we need to adjust our approach to make sure that we do bring up this topic. Um, and I think there's also maybe a little bit of discomfort with raising this topic for fear of it gets into an uncomfortable conversation. And of course, you know, this has uh, become a little bit of a political topic. Sometimes you're busy and you're a little bit behind. You don't want to take the time to get into it. But the upshot of not talking about it is we're leaving parents on their own to figure this out. Um, and I just think that's an unfair expectation for parents to sort through all of this information and misinformation without your help. So I wanna do one last part, next slide please, which is location. So this is where did COVID vaccination take place for those 12 to 18 year old kids who already got it? only 19% got it in the doctor's office or the clinic, much more so at a pharmacy or at a public COVID vaccination site. And next slide, for those kids, uh, parents of kids not yet vaccinated, we asked where would they prefer their child get vaccinated? And of course, you're not surprised by this. They wanna get it where their kid gets all vaccine, right? They wanna get it in your office as part of their regular care. And it's particularly important for those kids age three to 11, where we wanna make sure that not only are they informed about COVID vaccine, not only do they hear your strong recommendation, but they also need to be able to get, their, get that vaccine in a comfortable, a safe location where they feel confident that everything is gonna be done right for their kids. So I think this is gonna involve some advocacy to make sure that as we roll out vaccines for the younger kids, the distribution goes to primary care offices. It's really important to make sure that parents are on board with getting their kid vaccinated. 
Next slide. So quick summary, a lot of parents haven't had a discussion about COVID vaccine with their child's provider. And it's not just those that are interested in what you have to say. Um, second point, a discussion about COVID vaccine with no clear recommendation is very much on a pathway to the parent intention not to vaccinate. So be clear with your recommendation, please. Um, third thing is parents' questions and concerns about COVID vaccine are the same questions and concerns they have about all vaccines. So this conversation should feel very familiar to you. You might be able to draw on explanations you've given them about other childhood vaccines. This should be bread and butter of what we do in primary care pediatrics. Um, and then that last one, especially those parents of younger kids, um, there's the expectation that COVID vaccine will be available and administered in their child's regular office. And so we need to advocate to make sure that that happens. So um, thanks so much. Uh, happy to get feedback. And I know lots of people in the chat had questions from that first presentation. So uh, I will leave you with that. Uh, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Stay on. Uh, we have a number of questions for both of you, so I really appreciate it. Great, great insights. Uh, it, it really highlights the importance of bringing these vaccines to the pediatricians so they can actually administer them to their younger kids. Uh, we have a number of questions. We'll begin with a question for, for you, Sarah. Uh, um, so I'm going back to the bottom of the chart. Uh, and, then, and the question is, uh, how would you respond to a parent who would like their child to get antibody? No, that's, that's for John, actually. I'm sorry about that. Um, have you surveyed parents who are hesitant about mRNA vaccines mm -hmm. to ask if they would be more comfortable with different products, such as Novavax? There's a lot of background noise about mRNA vaccines. Um, have you looked at other products, perhaps? Is that something that is part of your research? It hasn't been because I think uh, that uh, online methodology doesn't really allow us to get into that nuance, but it's something that I would really like to do in more of a structured interview thing, because I think there is a lot to learn from the way that parents describe their hesitancy. Uh, what is it that is holding them back? And then what makes a different product potentially more attractive to them? So, but it also might be something that you all could ferret out in your conversations with parents and hear what well, what's holding them back on this one? Yeah, and, and sort of a follow-up to that, uh, just more for information, one of our uh, pediatricians wants to know, it says, great info, and in, in, are these uh, findings published yet, and uh, are they available so that we can actually have access to the full data set? Um, they are published as part of our uh, July mock poll report that you can distribute and I haven't yet had time to turn it into a, a you know, a article for in a peer reviewed journal, but we certainly can make that, um, uh, that poll report available to everybody. And I will put that link in the, the chat while you guys are still talking. Thank you. John, a number of questions for you. Um, any update on Moderna in terms of approval uh, for 12 year olds? Uh, I know Moderna is generating the data and it's supposed to be in front of the FDA shortly. I don't know the timing on that. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen this fall, though. And, uh, and similarly, if Pfizer is approved, is approved as a booster, will those of us who got Moderna be able to get a Pfizer booster? Uh -huh. The FDA says that's not recommended. Um, and again, I think we're going to need to wait for the FDA's analysis of data and what they're going to suggest or actually 
uh, require uh, come, I think it's the 17th to the 20th is, is the time frame that they're looking at this. But right now what I've heard is the Pfizer data are pretty clear. They're using mostly the Israeli data for a third dose at X number of months. And the Moderna data are not presented yet to them. Um, and it may be a little while because I don't think they're generating the same kind of clinical data that Pfizer has. Um, that said, you may remember a few months ago, I presented a study where they did a mix and match study and it works. I mean, they gave Pfizer and then Moderna and frankly J&J followed by the mRNA vaccines. Everybody boosted and did well. So I, it was a very small number of patients and I'm not sure that's been done in a larger number yet. So let's wait and see what the FDA shows. But right now, um, they're not recommending mix and match. It's Pfizer to Pfizer, Moderna to Moderna. And whether, remember, Moderna was included in the immunocompromised. So it seems to me logical that a third dose of Moderna would also be approved in the near future. But I, I can't guarantee that. The FDA is kind of stalling a little bit in that because they don't have the data yet. John, um, talking about hospitalization data, does the data represent the number of people who were hospitalized because of COVID-19 or does it represent people who had COVID-19 during their hospital stay? So uh, the, you're talking about the young people yeah. outcome. Yes, those were hospitalized young adults and the outcomes once you are hospitalized. So if you end up hospitalized as a young adult, a lot of them end up in the ICU and there's a death rate. These were not all infected kids. These are only kids who ended up in the hospital. It's a good question. I'm sorry I didn't clarify that. All right, uh, the next question for you is, uh, it, is, is her, isn't herd immunity underestimated when the 20% 20% of the country with natural immunity, or 20% of the country has had natural immunity. So what can you comment on that? Well, I think, you know, you can see a graphic illustration as this unfolds in the country. In New England, clearly the 60, 70% vaccination rate and probably lots of natural immunity is enough for us to blunt hospitalizations and deaths. The facts are clear. In Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, it's not. I mean, the under immunization and there's just not been enough other immunity. There are tons of people in the hospital. The death rate's high and the, the, the uh, amount of community spread is enormous. So uh, that's the only way I can answer it. Certainly, if you achieve a certain level of immunization added onto background, it seems to be working in New England, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut not Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, where you're 30, 40% immunized. It's not enough, even with the native infections. Uh, Sarah, a, a comment on a question. The, the, it, your, your results suggest that pediatricians need to be incorporating into their guidance as part of their routine visits now, their uh, supportive vaccination when it's available. Uh, it, you, you believe that should be the case, even you know, they're coming in for their well child, five-year visit, it's not approved yet but a discussion should be had with them in, pre in preparation for approval. Is that correct? That is correct. But you can also have that discussion of um, that uh, explains a little bit briefly, of course, why you're so confident. This is the FDA approval process. They will make sure that the vaccine is safe uh, and well-tested uh, before the approval is given for that three to 11 age group. So uh, if the parent, comes back with, well, how do you know it's not even approved? Because you know the process. Um, and so it is important. And the other thing is you can have the discussion about location. If you say, you know, I also know that when it's approved, the first people that might have it available is the Walgreens or the whatever drugstore is in town. 
if you feel comfortable about that place, you can encourage people um, to go elsewhere um, uh, if you are unclear whether your office is going to have it. So you can set parents up for when it's approved, come back if you have any questions, but also you can handle this on your own if you're comfortable going other locations to get it. Great, thank you. John, a couple of questions about myocarditis. Uh, how are we monitoring the long-term effects um, and what are the long-term consequences? If both well, things. it's a great question. I, I will say at Connecticut Children's, we have a follow-up clinic. These kids are being followed by cardiology. They're recovering apparently. I think you're right. We don't, you know, the, the pandemic is only this amount old and the myocarditis has only been recognized over the last six, seven months. So we have that much follow-up and the outcomes are good. but. It's a very important point. And as I mentioned, and actually Sarah, Sarah was a great talk and it's the same issue as you discussed with parents, the data and the process, only these are all things that, that can be discussed, but certainly we know from native infection, the, the amount of myocarditis is 30 times that you'll get from the vaccine, the likelihood, and the outcomes are not so great. There are a lot of long haulers now. We're starting our own long haul clinic for children here at Connecticut Children's because so many kids don't feel that great even after a minor COVID infection. So it's a great question and the follow-up is happening and we'll have a more specific answer in the coming months. Uh, I do wanna say um, also thanks to Sarah. I mean, it just shows the importance of the primary care community in pediatrics and helping really conquer this, uh, this pandemic. And uh, those were great data that you shared. And so thank you. John, a couple of questions about antibody testing. Uh, do you, if a family wants to get antibody testing on their child so to avoid vaccination, what would you say? I really, I don't think it's gonna be a relevant information because we don't really, the antibody tests that are routinely commercially available aren't really measuring neutralizing antibody titer and the ability to conquer the virus. It's just sort of, this is spike antibody and this, they might even measure nucleocapsid, I don't know. And it's not really been helpful. And remember, um, we don't know if you had an infection a year ago and it wasn't with Delta, uh, that's waning and the vaccines appear to be better than native infection with a non-Delta variant months ago. So I don't think it's relevant and useful. Right. It's, it's 901. Uh, just one question there. They're asking about the Lambda variant. What do we know about that? Well, there are two new variants out there that are of concern, Lambda and Mu. Uh, both of them have those same kind of patterns where you need more antibody to neutralize them than the original Alpha variants. So, you know, we know there's going to be a Delta type of problem. At the moment, though, they don't appear to be as contagious as Delta. I mean, Delta is dominating still in the United States, although there's more and more Mu now. So these are variants we're gonna to have to watch. There's very limited data so far on this, and I'll talk more about it next time, but they're very good questions. At the moment, Delta is dominating. Great, I think we're gonna to have to wrap it up. Uh, Dr. Zellenwright has reminded me also that uh, tomorrow is the Gay Pride Festival at Bushnell Park here in Hartford, and uh, please come all, if you can, if you can stop by, the pediatric group is, uh, pediatric, the pediatric residents have a table uh, that in support for our gay community. So please uh, come in if you can. Uh, thank you. There could not answer all the questions. Sarah, great presentation. John, as always, great information. Uh, we'll provide as much information as we can to the answers that we couldn't answer. When's our, next, a, uh, when's our next session, Elizabeth? Oh. Yeah, we'll put the chat for the next session. We, we begin Grand Rounds again on, on Tuesday. Uh, we, we have our, our legal team coming in to provide, uh, you know, just a great talk that she gives every, every year, uh, uh, Joyce Langees. And so please join us for Grand Rounds. 
please stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, and again, we'll see you again Tuesday and Friday. Bye-bye.